0: Hello again, dreamers. This is going to be a short follow-up to last weekend's episode 70, the tale of Sherry Papini. I wanna thank everyone who took the time to comment on the Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter posts that I had about this story. Many of you made some very valid points and had me looking at the case from different angles, even the little details, some of which may be able to be explained away. So I'm gonna go through some of your comments and theories that you shared in this addendum to that case. The first comment I want to discuss comes from Felicia S. She said that this case is fishy, but where was Sherry for those 22 days? I didn't even really go over that in the original episode because there is actually no information out there as to where she was held that she was just kept in isolation. Nobody has said, not the investigators, not Sherry's husband, no one has hinted as to where she was all that time. Felicia wonders, if she was such a great mom, could she stay away that long intentionally? Well, if you consider what's been said about Sherry's past, she seems to have some narcissistic traits. And I say seems because that's just my opinion she just strikes me as really self-centered and she seems kind of fake i said it in the show that maybe everyone around her were her props and she was the star of the sherry show i have no doubt sherry loves her children but she seems very capable of putting herself first if this was a hoax if the abduction was faked if she was trying to get away from her life for a little bit for a fling with a doctor and Keith inadvertently threw a monkey wrench into her plans by reporting her missing, once that happened, she may have gotten in too deep for this whole scheme to turn back. And everything else were misguided attempts to sell this story. Felicia also questioned if there was the possibility of financial gain. They did set up a GoFundMe, which did raise almost $50,000 for the efforts. I don't know what all the costs are for searching, but if they had to print flyers and posters and billboards, if volunteers were out there searching they needed to provide food, drinks, and refreshments, if they hired tracking dogs, or whatever they needed to do. From what I said I could find, there did not seem to be a reward on the missing persons posters that were put up all around town, but it was about two weeks into Sherry's disappearance that the anonymous donor came forward, And that became the so-called ransom for Sherry's return. But no one ever responded, and no ransom was ever paid to anyone, reportedly. So what became of the GoFundMe is only conjecture on my part, but probably search-effort cost, and, of course, Keith had his kids to take care of. He seemed very distraught, and I don't even know if he was able to work during the time that Sherry was missing. Otherwise, it seems kind of like a small amount of money for such an elaborate put-on. Felicia also brought up another point. She could not recall any abduction cases that were committed by women. I mentioned to her in my reply that I do know of at least one case where a woman was abducted by another woman, the victim being the wife of the man the abductor was having an affair with. It's a story that's on my list to cover in the future, so... I don't want to give it away quite yet, but that's the only abduction committed by a female that I can think of. I'm sure it's happened, but even in my reading up on Sherry's case, the FBI has stated that this is not the norm for an abduction like this. If this was a hoax and the kidnappers were made up in Sherry's mind, I think she picked women to be more believable because if she were abducted by men, she may have likely been sexually assaulted or even killed saying that they were women just about rules, those acts out of the equation, or maybe that's what Sherry thought Katina. I said that she doesn't believe Sherry's story, but she doesn't think that the husband was in on it. She pointed out that one of the things that needed to be considered is that Keith is a millennial and they have proven to be very dependent on technology as well as electronic devices and the conveniences of not actually having to talk to people. She thinks that the mode of communication between the two of them was primarily texting when they weren't together, which would explain why he didn't call her. But Katina agreed with me when I pondered the using the find my iPhone app that he did that because his wife was a pathological liar and it could have gotten to the point where he didn't believe a word that she said. Katina thinks Sherry had a history of infidelity and this was Keith's way of feeling some semblance of control over her whereabouts. When it came to him using her car to go on the search for her, that didn't seem like a big deal to her because she and her husband have used each other's cars when one car is low on gas particularly. Something also to consider is that maybe he had a smaller car and he was going to use her car to get the children if they were out on a walk And that even occurred to me after the fact as well that he needed to go pick up his children from daycare as well if he wasn't going to be able to find Sherry. So taking her car suddenly becomes less of an issue at this point. Katina also pointed out that pathological liars can possibly commit acts of self-harm for attention. And it's quite possible that she branded herself and did these things to her own face to further her lies and make them more believable. Their reclusiveness now could be due to the fact that she is ashamed to face the public because many believe that she had lied and doubt what she's claimed to have happened. Katina thinks it was an extramarital affair gone wrong and Sherry did this to get the attention and sympathy of her lover because he seems to have ditched her. And yes, I agree with you, Katina. There are many aspects to discuss and thank you for your input. Janie W. also chimed in about the car thing and said when her children were small, they had two vehicles, but only one had car seats. If Keith thought Sherry was out walking to the mailbox with the children, then maybe he took her car so he could have the car seats for the kids. And Michelle H. said the same thing, that she and her husband have two cars and they use them interchangeably, and they just take whichever car they feel like taking, so it's not strange to her. But his other behaviors? Yeah. Yeah those are weird. In response to Katina's comments, I floated the idea that Keith used the Find My iPhone to try and see where Sherry was and that maybe he knew that she was having an affair and maybe she left her phone at home so he couldn't track her and in order to find her because it was driving him crazy, the only thing he could think of was to call the police and he took her phone and planted it out there by the mailboxes. I don't think keith is completely innocent but i think he was misguided in his attempts to deal with his wife's infidelity and things went too far because she had a history of self-harm i wouldn't put it completely past her to do all of those things to herself in order to sell her story cindy a commented on this and said that this happened near where her parents lived and many thought it could have been part of a human trafficking ring She points out that Sacramento is a large hub for that and Sherry looks much younger than she is, but because there was such a huge news blitz, they had to let her go. Cindy said that the law enforcement said that her injuries couldn't be self-inflicted and there was at least one woman gone missing around the same time. Okay, so I commented back on this and I pointed out that I did not think Sherry Papini fit the profile of someone who would be targeted by sex traffickers I suggested that they usually procure their victims over time and target young vulnerable people and that they are usually not snatched off the streets at random because that poses too much of a risk of being exposed. I did mention the other woman that went missing the same day as Sherry Papini; Her name is Stacy Smart and I will discuss her in a little more depth but I don't think she fit the profile of someone who was trafficked either as she was 52 years old when she went missing. And she is still missing. Jorge G. said it's hard to believe her, even though she said two women kidnapped her, yet they found male DNA on her clothing. And Baz Henderson, many of you know him as the host of the Extraordinary Stories podcast. If you love a good story and a thick Scottish accent, then it's a must listen. Sherry Papini is a favorite of his and he said that the descriptions of the Hispanic women Sherry provided were ridiculous at best. Others had more interesting comments about the composite sketches of the two Hispanic women, which we will go over in a bit. Baz also thinks that Sherry is just plain creepy, specifically some of the pictures of her online with Keith. Leslie P. commented and said that she does not think Sherry's kidnapping was a hoax, and she points to the fact that She does not think that Sherry would have injured herself in the manner in which she was found. She doesn't think that she would have cut off her hair, and she doesn't think that if this was a hoax, that Sherry would have become a recluse. Megan S. replied to Leslie and said that those are very interesting points, that if this was a hoax, that maybe she and her husband did it for attention, then why completely disappear afterwards, right? Maybe they garnered the wrong kinds of attention because nobody was buying their story. And to this point, I have to agree somewhat with Leslie. I do lean more towards this being an elaborate staging of a kidnapping. But the injuries to Sherry that she was alleged to have keep me wondering as well. Would she have done that to herself or allowed those things to have been done to her to sell a story? It's hard to imagine and she strikes me as kind of vain. But what a way to make it believable, right? To be honest, I think that's one of the only things that Sherry has going for her in her favor, that many people are not willing to believe that she would hurt herself in this way. It's definitely a sticking point. Outside of that, for me, everything is suspect. Jeremiah W., who apparently moonlights a Spider-Man, says his spidey senses say something is not adding up on this one, and I certainly agree on that. Rebecca Jane said that she's confused. We all are, honey. We all are. She said that she hates to say that she doesn't believe her. But there are so many weird things. But then the weight loss and the injuries and the branding. She thinks Sherry must be struggling with some serious mental health issues to do all of those things to herself. But these things have happened. But where did Sherry go? Again. That's another question I hope gets answered someday. Yes, it's very, very intriguing. Shelley M. commented, and I'm assuming that in listening to episode 70, that she's just been made aware of Michigan Man or Dr. Detroit. Knowing this juicy tidbit of info, she wonders if Keith knew about Michigan Man. Maybe it was Keith who was behind the kidnapping in an effort to scare the cheating out of Sherry and did it as a vengeance-type kidnapping. Well, that would make for a strange theory in this case, but I really don't get that vibe from Keith. I don't know him. He just seems nauseatingly in love. I think that Sherry was the dominant partner in the relationship, and he was at her beck and call. Also, Shelley pointed out that it's always stood out to her that it was Hispanic women who quote-unquote kidnapped Sherry, And that always sounded a little off. I replied to her comment and said that it's quite possible that Keith knew Sherry was cheating. And then I began to question again, how he was able to support an entire family on retail wages. Sherry didn't work and the kids were in daycare. And I pointed out that when I worked in preschool, there were moms like that who would bring their kids into daycare so they could go to brunch or go to yoga or whatever. And the dads definitely were not working in a department store. And this is where I kind of speculated that maybe Sherry wanted more than the guy at Best Buy. Say, perhaps a doctor? Who knows? I did want to say that Dominique S. did comment that it was refreshing for once that people are using different points of reference for the bad guys, not always accusing black males of committing fictitious crimes. If, indeed, this was a staged kidnapping... So over at Instagram, D96 Moon said, and from what I gather from her comment, doesn't feel that this was a hoax. She thinks that Sherry's haircut is a sign of hatred towards her image and that her attacker or person that she was with was male, possibly somebody that she knew. She thinks that there's a slight possibility that Sherry willingly took a trip with the male for sexual interest And that the experience turned bad, and she was threatened beyond fear to say anything about it. The captor could be someone well-known, or has connections, or some type of power. Or Sherry is covering up an affair in a very, very elaborate way. And also on Instagram, Tragic Tracy said she can't make heads or tails of this. I feel you, Tracy. And I commented on my picture of the iPhone with the earbuds on top of them. That was not the actual picture. It was a recreation done by 2020, and I screen capped it. But the sheriff did say that the phone looked carefully placed, as did the earbuds. Erin H. pointed out something that I had not read much about in the research that I did. She said that Sherry went to Bethel Church in Reading. But this isn't your typical neighborhood church, and it's one known worldwide, and pointed out that BuzzFeed did a pretty good expose on the church. Erin said that from her experience with knowing Bethel students herself and from her non-religious family and friends who live in Reading, the BuzzFeed article appears to have been pretty accurate assessment. So, BuzzFeed did put out several articles on the church. I didn't know much about this and I needed to look it up and I found an article on getreligion.org that summed up their reporting on Bethel in Reading. It's entitled BuzzFeed takes the time to dig into Bethel Church and gets this complex story right and it's written by Julia Dune and dated October 25th 2017. And this is what the article said. One of the most intriguing churches in the country is Bethel Church in Northern California. If there is a Jesus movement among today's millennials, Bethel is its epicenter. Despite the thousands of visitors this place receives from around the world, its influence has gotten almost unnoticed by the media, which tends to be clueless about current trends among Pentecostals and Charismatics. Fortunately, reporters are beginning to discover Bethel via a book by two scholars affiliated with the University of Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture. The authors of The Rise of Network Christianity have been planting guest editorials in several places warning readers of the evils of this movement, plus why people need to educate themselves about it, and read their book, of course. There's also been articles about the movement associated with Bethel, such as Bob Smitana's recent piece in Christianity Today, and a piece by yours truly, who was the article of this article that I'm reading for you, for Religion News Service last year. But there hasn't been a whole lot else. It's a tough movement to pin down much less write about the latest effort at explaining Bethel in the form of a first person feature comes from BuzzFeed. It begins. It's the first day of prophecy week at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry or as students like to call the place Christian Hogwarts. The auditorium of the Civic Center in Redding, California, where its first-year students have class, is so full of eager, neatly-dressed young people that it's initially impossible to find a seat. The room full of some 1,200 students hums with expectant energy. The piece goes on to describe Bethel Church and Chris Vallotton, one of its main preachers. The Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, or BSSM, from this point forward, is at the forefront of a burgeoning and decidedly youthful evangelical Christian revival. Some have called this movement the fastest growing religious group in America, a loose network of churches led by so-called apostles who see supernatural gifts like prophecy and faith healing as the key to global conversion. While other religious movements struggle to retain members and draw in young people, Bethel attracts millennials in droves. The school, which is unaccredited and does not have degrees, sends students into Reading and across the globe, armed with training in how to speak God's words, heal the sick, and use the supernatural to win souls. It has spawned imitators across the country and on nearly every continent. But BSSM is also at the crux of a conflict brewing in the small, isolated city of Reading, population 90,000. On one side is the church that runs the school, Bethel Reading, which has more than nine thousand in its congregation, its own little city on a hill. On the other side of the group of longtime Reading residents, religious and non-religious alike, who are afraid, or even angry, about the growing influence of this church in their city and their lives. So Buzzfeed is not known for its objectivity. The organization even states in its newsroom standards and ethics guide that it refuses to cover both sides of a number of issues, including civil rights, women's rights, anti-racism, and LGBTQ equality. So I wondered how fair would this piece by BuzzFeed business reporter be? Turns out she did a heck of a job. Judging from the comments, people from Bethel, as well as those opposed to it, this feature was well done. And as it rapidly grows, Bethel has devoted itself to fixing the struggling city of Redding, which is one of California's poorest. And by the way, Dreamers, I did not know this. It donates money to the police department. It buys out public buildings. It nurtures local businesses. It sends armies of students to clean the city's trash and syringe-strewn riverbanks. To the church's leaders, Redding and Bethel are complex. And the city's rebirth is one of the church's most urgent missions. So what's not to like? Apparently a lot, as the article relates how some city residents don't like the church helping out and they really don't like the BSSM students showing up at all sorts of public places offering to pray for people on the spot in the hopes that the miraculous will happen. The reporter explains further, This is the BSSM's real goal, creating spiritual warriors, young people who will go out into the world armed with just the kind of supernatural gifts that Bethel believes will bring people into the kingdom of God. Jesus is bringing the kingdom and he is doing it through signs and wonders, says Dan Farrelly, BSSM's Dean. They're the kind of things that make people go, huh, there's something about you, about this. Jesus even said, you don't have to believe in me, you believe in the signs that I'm doing. Simply put, miracles are a good way to convert people. BSSM is built on the idea that we are all naturally supernatural. We all have the potential to heal the sick and hear God's vision for the future. It's ours because it's Jesus's, says Farrelly. Jesus echoes the work and humans act as conduits. The school's job is to foster the supernatural gifts of signs and wonders, to teach people to hear God's voice and turn it into prophecy. Having visited Bethel and knowing how tough it is to report on the unseen world for a readership that only believes in what can be seen. I think the writer did a credible job of explaining Bethel's worldview. The article goes on to explain the movement linking Bethel to like-minded churches around the globe. Some call followers independent network charismatics or INCs or part of the New Apostolic Reformation or NAR. Whatever it is, it's growing like crazy. Volatin and senior pastor Bill Johnson have each built their own brands, too, with sleek websites, dozens of supernaturally focused books between them, and gigs speaking at Revival Churches worldwide. The Bethel Church bookstore is filled wall-to-wall with Johnson's and Valatoon's books, bright paperbacks with titles like The Supernatural Power of a Transformed Mind and Intentional Parenting, Kingdom Perspective on Raising Revivalists. And then there's the gem of the operation, Bethel Music, whose dozens of Christian artists have made albums that sit at the top of iTunes charts and regularly bring in millions of listeners. I kept on reading and reading as the piece brought out stuff I hadn't heard about, and I thought I was pretty well-versed in Bethel lore. One interesting sub-theme focuses on why a lot of non-charismatic evangelicals oppose Bethel, chiefly because they believe the prophecies and healings touted by the church are fraudulent. Another is how the church has mastered social media. The church is highly internet-savvy, with a network of Instagram and Facebook accounts, each with hundreds of thousands of followers that post high-quality, heavily-produced clips of songs, conferences, testimonials, and images of faith and revival. Laughing college kids fill the church's Instagram stories daily and its services are often led by young people barely out of their teenage years. So Bethel is doing what every other religious institution wants to do today, haul in lots of young followers. The reporter interviewed a bunch of people at Bethel, disenchanted former Bethelites, and just about everybody else other than Bill Johnson, who is pictured with this article. I wish you could have caught that fish, but I guess you can't have it all. The second half of the article is about the church's relationship with writing itself, which was on the skids with unemployment and crime until Bethel began importing thousands of short term BSSM students who needed food, places to stay and other amenities. You hear from people who think the church is the best thing that ever happened to the city of 90,000. Then there are others who fear some kind of theocratic takeover. It ends with an account of the total weirdness of the Bethel healing room, where the reporter asks for healing for her injured knee. The account is both ghastly and gripping. If there is one serious charge the writer raises, it's no one at Bethel is asked to answer it. It's that the healings there are, by and large, fake, or, at best, wishful thinking. Divine healings are a dicey thing to write about, and I swore off covering them after I got... Really burned reporting on some healing claims at a revival. But they are Bethel's claim to fame, and I'm old enough to remember all the controversies over Vineyard founder John Wimber's healing sessions. And by the way, Wimber was an early pioneering pastor of charismatic congregations and author and thought leader in modern Christian publications on the third person of the Christian Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's perceived action in modern churches through miraculous phenomena known as signs and wonders. Well, Bethel is John Wimber on steroids. Not every reporter has the time and institutional background to spend time in writing, researching an 8700 word piece. But this article points out Bethel has conferences and outposts worldwide and many of its staff roam about North America speaking at various venues. There are other Bethel stories and other zip codes to cover. If you haven't heard of Bethel, you will soon. As for the media, there's no excuse to not be up on the movements fostered by this church. Okay, so back to Aaron's comments in regards to Sherry Pepini's affiliation with Bethel. She is guessing that the ransom money came from either the church or someone who was connected to Bethel. She's also assuming that Bethel is the church that was donating Mr. Freelance Negotiator who she called the Samuel L. Jackson wannabe, Cameron Gamble. Erin used to work for an organization very similar to Bethel, and she has an understanding of how that world works. She has a lot of friends who have gone through Bethel schools. And the one reason she really doubts Sherry's stories comes down to her affiliation with this church. From what she's seen from her friends and the church, they have a focus on ending sex trafficking, which is great. But from conversations that Aaron has had with Bethel students, the subject seems to be treated with a lot of high drama, the kind of sex trafficking that people fear. supermoms getting abducted in broad daylight from the mall parking lot and not the slow coercion of already vulnerable women and children. Erin admits that she could be wrong about this. It's just an impression. But her point is this. The background information could show that Cherry, her husband, or both likely knew that an abduction story would either A, be believed or B, be taken seriously. That could explain why her husband either jumped to the assumption of abduction or if you think he staged the phone to pressure her to come home, why he chose that approach. Leslie P replied and said that it is her understanding that Sherry and Keith did not attend Bethel. But after rethinking it, Aaron thinks that Cameron Gammel may have been the one that had the ties to the Bethel church, as well as several other people linked to the case that also had ties to the church as well, which leads her to think that it was a possibility because even if the Papinis didn't attend the church, they may have had some connection through family and friends living in Reading. Aaron says it's hard to not have some kind of connection because Bethel has such a large influence. Leslie said that's the thing with this theory, that when people see quote, ties to Bethel, they just run with that and there's a difference between attending a church and diving headfirst into its ministry schools. And it is not her intentions to disparage Bethel congregants, but she just knows that sometimes attendees may not be aware of or buy into the more extreme or fringe practices taught by a church or an organization. And in the context of this case, she does think that the church and its local influence is worth discussing as background information. The church does support Cameron Gamble, so it seems to validate a certain perspective on human trafficking that influences how the community views a case like this and thus how the local authorities will respond, particularly if the church has economic and political influence in the community. Janie D. said that she thinks that this is a hoax and has always thought so and has posed this question to us. Does anyone else see a slight similarity between Sherry and the sketch of the abductors, specifically the younger one with the straight hair? I personally hadn't thought about the composite sketches, because to be honest, Dreamers, I'm inclined to think that they were made up, so I didn't focus too much on them. But the fact that there may be a similarity lends to that theory. Michelle F. agreed that the two women in the composites look almost identical. And Dave W. thought the sketches looked like Sherry as well. And then he floated this theory for us to chew on. Mind you, this is out there, so. What if Sherry had a rape fantasy, and she was having an affair with some rough-and-tumble kind of guy who agreed to indulge her in her fantasy, and he quote-unquote kidnapped her and went to work making the fantasy as real as possible, but when she finally said the safe word he had gone too far, and it was too late for him to turn back and she was irreparably branded he got sloppy and she escaped and doesn't want to have to tell the world exactly what happened so she made up these hispanic characters zanny the nanny anyone and here we are trying to figure it all out dave acknowledges that this sounds crazy but not any crazier than say the owl did it okay so anything's possible right This might explain some of the male DNA, but according to reports, Sherry wasn't sexually assaulted. Now, I don't know if they were able to determine if Sherry had consensual sex or not, and those details were not made public, so I don't know. What would the results of a rape fantasy look like when you're being examined for sexual assault? I have no idea. So, Virginia M. is convinced that this is all a setup as well. And she says it's pretty obvious to her and wonders why sherry hasn't been charged well leslie pointed out that that's because it's not that obvious and she can't see someone beating and branding themselves like that and virginia said because of her history of self-harm it's not that far-fetched and cindy a pointed out that sherry's acts of self-harm took place a long time ago and who doesn't do dumb stuff when they are young and i agree and that has never been said that has ever happened on any more than one occasion. And this is way beyond a little bit of cutting. Dominique S. commented that Sherry could have consented to an awful beating and branding to keep her husband from being interested. Even as she typed this comment, she thought that there were too many ways it could have come undone. Janie D. agreed with this that she consented to the beating to solidify her story and cutting her hair in the scheme of things is minor because it does grow back. Lacey R. is torn as to what happened here, but is also intrigued by the sketches. She has heard previously from a professional sketch artist that stated many times if a witness is making up a perpetrator, they will subconsciously describe their own features. What came to my mind right away when I read Lacey's comment is Jody Arias, Remember in one of her several stories about what happened the day that she killed Travis Alexander, she said that two people came in and attacked them, one male and one female? The talking heads on HLN said that she's most likely talking about herself and Travis in this scenario. So to Lacey, the sketch of the Hispanic woman with the straight hair looks like Sherry with a mask on, and the other with the wavy hair looks like Sherry with thicker eyebrows, wrinkles, and a mask. Allie G. agreed that the sketches look like Sherry and even wondered why there are even sketches of her in the first place, thinking that those were of Sherry. Janie D. and Cynthia D. agreed as well. Allie G. commented further and said that she thinks that this was a hoax and she thinks law enforcement are pretty certain of that. There are too many fishy things going on here and not enough to lead her to believe otherwise. She feels law enforcement can't confirm this or even hint at it too strongly. ...without concrete evidence, and they shouldn't. We've seen what happens when that went down in the past, namely the Denise Haskins case that I spoke of last year. So it would be pretty thoughtless of them to do so, and I agree. I just wonder if they're still investigating this or not. Dee Edwards said that she can't get it out of her head, especially the possibility of it all being faked because they had children. Sherry had children, who would have fully believed that their mom was missing... This aspect of the story broke her heart. The idea of the children leaving them behind. Would a supermom do that? Maybe. If she wasn't exactly a supermom. April S. had a very personal comment to share. She has borderline personality disorder, which she is thankful to now be aware of and hasn't self-sabotaged her life in many years. However, during her younger years, when she felt trapped or backed into a corner, her coping mechanisms weren't the best. She never faked an abduction or her death, but she totally could have. When things would spin out of control due to her own actions, mind you, she would need something super dramatic to happen to get the heat off. It's an extremely stressful disorder. This was a story of her teens and 20s until she met an excellent therapist who helped her gain some necessary coping and communication skills. April thinks Sherry faked this event, but not with malicious intent. It was likely to distract from something else going on. Two others, Cynthia D and Elizabeth C agreed with this theory. Donna J said that this case is a head-scratcher and she thinks it smells like a rat and it probably is. She doesn't buy Sherry's story at all. Looking at her past, that pretty much spells out to her that she will do anything to get her way and to get attention. She sees now that she's a recluse, but it's because the story didn't get the response that she wanted. The only thing that made Donna question the validity was the weight loss. She might cut her hair. She might let somebody beat her up for a good story, but she's going to eat. She can't put her finger on it if her husband knew or if he was just naive bottom line to Donna. It's all too fishy as well. Sunshine K said her husband is very tech driven and he will use find my iPhone rather than calling or texting, especially when the kids were little. He would often come home and surprise her and the kids by meeting them on their walk or at the park. On top of that, her husband will drive her car when things involve the children. Now, as for her, She is the one who freaks out in the family. If her child is 30 minutes late, she's ready to call 911. It doesn't occur to her to do anything beyond calling, texting, and freaking out. There is no looking for that person. In her mind, she needs to stay put in case they come home. She might call a friend if she knew that they were with that friend, but maybe not. But to her, Sherry and Keith sound like her and her husband. Vicky says that she doesn't know what to think. It's a strange tale for sure. And she is skeptical that she caused herself all that much harm just to prove a kidnapping. What's more striking about this case and has been since the beginning is how damn tight-lipped law enforcement and the media are on it. Usually there's much more information way before now. So much so she's usually embarrassed for the individual involved for how much we are told that's none of our business. This case Vicki watched for months. ...waiting for the eventual story to come out, still nothing. Someone is protecting someone. Or maybe they are working a much bigger angle underneath it all. But it does seem a dead case at this point. She has no idea what the truth is because almost nobody does. She is uncomfortable hearing all of the Sherry bashing... ...because it sounds like victim blaming... ...or just because somebody has a dodgy past. It doesn't mean that she doesn't deserve sympathy... But she would agree with Sherry Bashing if she knew that she concocted the whole thing. But she doesn't know. None of us do. So she's holding out shreds of empathy for Sherry. Then she starts thinking of Casey Anthony and how many tales that she wove. And she just doesn't know. And I agree. People are capable of lying through their teeth effortlessly. DDJ said that she doesn't know what to think about this case either. It sounds hinky to her. It's just off, but she really can't explain it. Nobody can. Donna J said she can't get past the fact that the ransom money was put up when there was no real evidence it had been a kidnapping and no demands were made. Most of the time, when someone is abducted, they are killed. Criminals just don't mess with kidnapping demands. It's too risky to get caught in today's world. Those are just her thoughts it's kept her bogged down in her brain for a couple days now. And I feel ya. Ronnie B said when this first happened, he thought that she did a Farley Arrow. What he's referring to is the Australian singer's disappearance from her Isle of Capri home on December 15th, 1991. And the media reported that she was taken by an obsessed fan. Two days later, her husband elaborated on the concept of a fatal attraction, saying that If you look at what show business is about, it's really about what you aim for. You aim for people liking your image. But at the time of her disappearance, Arrow was having difficulty keeping up the image that she wanted to. She was having to take work at smaller venues. And it was during that time that she was thought to have been the victim of an obsessed fan when she was actually in control and in a state of self-exile. For those two days, she was in a motel room 5 kilometers or 3.11 miles away from the casino where she worked at. She was watching the reports of herself on TV and was only able to pull it off until housekeeping recognized her and called police. She tried to convince skeptics that she was the victim, but ultimately admitted in January of 1992 that it was a hoax. And her plan did, for the most part, work. It garnered a lot of media attention around all the drama. And finally, some of the last commenters on this thread, Kim C. and Emily H. Kim said that she has not spoken to anyone who believes Sherry was taken. Most believe it was a stunt, and she tends to agree. And Emily said that she does not believe that Sherry was taken either. The fact that her phone was found face-up with the earbuds so neatly on top of the phone proves that there was no struggle. She rips her earbuds out of her phone just by walking. There's no way that they would still be attached to the phone if there was a struggle. She also wears earbuds constantly and never has hair tangled in them. She sheds hair everywhere. So that with the history of self-harm and the pathological lying leads Emily to believe that Sherry was behind the whole thing likely for attention. She's not sure about Keith, but he's so obsessed with his wife she believes he'd do anything for her. At the very last minute, Sarah P. managed to squeeze in her last-minute comment on her Facebook thread. She said that this case reminds her of the Gone Girl bug. And she wondered if the guy putting up the ransom was somehow involved as well and put up the money to take suspicion off of himself, but knowing he'd never have to pay it out. And Sarah also said that it Sherry's personality traits remind her of Jodi Arias. Interesting comparison, and I totally see where you're going with that. Jody did do some weird things for attention, no doubt. And that would be the case for Sherry as well, if she pulled off this elaborate stunt for attention. Nikki T., my very good friend and host of the Strictly Homicide podcast, which, if you aren't listening, is kind of like our show here with stories from Arkansas. She and her husband for some time shared a car, which she hates with a passion, But they recently got a second car and it is decidedly hers. So no debate in her house as to who's driving whose car. And that's just about it for the feedback that we got on the story so far. If you left a comment and it wasn't included, it was because it was just a little bit too late. The discussion could likely go on forever until someone comes out with the truth and who knows if that will ever happen. Either one of two things needs to happen. Either these abductors are arrested and prosecuted or Sherry is arrested and prosecuted. Short of that, I don't see us getting any closer to knowing what happened to Sherry Papini and those lost 22 days. I mentioned earlier that on the same day that Sherry went missing, another woman also went missing about 25 miles or 40 kilometers apart from one another. Her name is Stacy Smart. And she's the mother of four, her youngest being only 11. She also was a grandmother, and she was 52 years old at the time that she went missing. Unfortunately, though, many of us were fixated at the time on Sherry's disappearance. Stacy's went relatively unnoticed outside of the local area, as the media's attention was turned to Sherry Papini. Stacy was reported missing by her eldest daughter the same day that Keith reported Sherry missing. What is also unfortunate is the exact day Stacy went missing isn't quite clear. Her daughter hadn't spoken to her mom since about the 12th of October of 2016. And the last transaction on her debit card were made on the 16th of October. And Trinity County authorities have made it clear that they did not feel that there was a link between Sherry's case and Stacy's case, mainly because though they were reported missing on the same day, Stacy had not been seen for more than two weeks by the time her report was filed. Sherry actually went missing on the day of November 2nd. Stacy's daughter became alarmed as Halloween came and went and she still hadn't heard from her mom as they had plans to get together that day. She then tried calling some of her mom's friends who had said that it had been several weeks since any of them had seen or heard from her either. And all the while, Sherry Papini's alleged abduction had gained not only national but international attention. This was not the case for Stacy. So her family and friends worked nonstop searching the Lewingston area for their missing loved one. Stacy's family hired Angie Forsland, a search manager, and she did not feel that Stacy would be found alive. And this was also the case that I mentioned in episode 70. That the self described kidnapping negotiation consultant Cameron Gamble was asked for his assistance in as well. In the last couple of weeks of October, Stacy's mother had tried to call the house several times, but not only was she not getting any answers on the home phone, it was actually disconnected. After Stacy missed their Halloween plans, Nicole, her eldest daughter, and her husband went over to her house to check on her, but they found nobody home. So they left a note asking her to please give them a call that there is an emergency and that this was very important, but they never heard from her. They were also hoping to hear from Stacy's live in boyfriend at the time, a man by the name of Tony Brand. She had moved in with him towards the beginning of spring 2016. So she had been there for about six months, according to Nicole. He was an in-home care worker as well as a karaoke DJ. According to Stacy's sister, Melissa, the couple seemed happy, telling her that she was happy with Tony and that the couple were doing well. But according to Nicole, her mom had called her grandmother about a month before she vanished and was upset in tears that Tony had been having an affair. They had apparently been able to work things out, but it was about a month later that Stacy disappeared. And Tony, for a time, seemed to have vanished as well. It appeared at first... The couple were both missing. The last time that the couple were seen, they had attended a birthday party at a neighbor's house. When they were leaving the party, one of the attendees witnessed a fight break out between the couple. And once Stacy's daughter realized that that was the last time anyone had seen her mom, at which time, a couple weeks had already passed, she filed that missing persons report on November 2nd, the same day that Keith filed his missing report for Sherry. Law enforcement were concerned right away because Stacy was born and raised in that area. She had children and grandchildren, family, friends, and loved ones whom she was very close to, and nobody had heard from her in weeks. About a week after Nicole filed the missing persons report for her mom, she was finally able to get a hold of Tony Brand. He was at the house, and he was, by all accounts, cordial. He invited Stacy's family in, but... He really didn't have much to say. They asked him where Stacy was, and his only answer was, I don't know. They aren't really believing him because they just don't think he got up one day and didn't realize where she'd gone. But he stuck with the story. He doesn't know. She just left. So Stacy's sister began calling around to people who regularly interacted with the couple, and they told her that Tony had told them that Stacy moved out of the house two weeks earlier. Another friend of the couple told Stacy's sisters that Tony told them that Stacy had gotten violent and he had to make her move out. But when Nicole asked Tony about her mom's whereabouts, Tony seemed to change his story again. He told her that her mom had stopped by a couple of times, leaving him notes that she was nearby. But every time she stopped by, he wasn't home. She asked to see the notes and he claimed to not know where they were. Stacy's sister and daughter asked if they could look around the house to which he agreed and they found all of her belongings still to be there even more ominous as Stacy's sister Melissa made her way to the bedroom that the couple had shared there was an oval patch of carpet missing that had been cut out she took pictures of the missing carpet with her phone but law enforcement went out to the home with a team of forensic investigators to search it they did note the patchwork carpeting that the family raised concerns about, but that had been there for a significant amount of time according to investigators. According to sources who knew the couple and said that they had this project going on that they were working to create some sort of collage of carpeting, so investigators dismissed the missing carpet that Stacy's sister had noted. Tony was brought in for questioning. He told investigators that she had left at one point in their relationship and that she did not give him any information about her leaving. So he began seeing another woman, but then she came back and they picked up their relationship again. So he assumed this time that she had just left again, like she had in the past, so he wasn't suspicious of her being gone without telling him. Law enforcement wouldn't say whether they believed his story or not, but Stacy's family made it clear that they do not believe Tony's story because of the lack of activity on her debit card. The last time it was used was the day after the fight that was witnessed by neighbors. Tony was also asked to submit to a lie detector test, but he refused, telling law enforcement that if he has to, he will, but he needs to have an attorney. Stacy's son-in-law offered to pay for an attorney for him if he'd take the test, so Tony agreed. An appointment was scheduled, and when the time came for the test, Tony was a no-show. I'm fairly certain though, if Tony had an attorney, that he would have been advised not to submit to a polygraph test. And on top of that, there was no proof that a crime had taken place. So the family doubled down on their search efforts, utilizing the support from not only volunteers in the community, but also as well as hiring a private search team and cadaver dogs as well. And one person notably missing from the search efforts was Tony, which to me isn't surprising. We see this happen often. It doesn't really point towards or away from guilt. Suspects whether or not they've had anything to do with what happened to the missing person usually stay away for good reason. So I don't really blame him. It wasn't like she was the love of his life. You know, they weren't together for very long. He didn't seem very committed or faithful to their relationship. And if she had left and come back before He's not feeling the urgency that her family is. To Stacy's family, it makes him look even more guilty, but I just don't think he cared enough either way. And by all accounts, aside from the polygraph, Tony was mostly cooperative with both police and the private investigation, and he's even said he thinks she's run off, so he wasn't interested in helping in the search effort. There have been a few leads that have come up, but nothing leading to Stacy or what may have happened to her. And in the meantime, Stacy's eldest daughter, Nicole, and her husband adopted Stacy's youngest child. After several weeks of searching and coming up with nothing, Stacy's family received a visit from someone who said to be a friend of Tony's and she said that she had some information. She told Stacy's family that Tony admitted to her that he had disposed of her in a location which she shared with the family, but the family isn't speaking about it openly just yet, as the investigation is still ongoing. The family's private investigator interviewed this woman, tape-recorded it, and turned it over to police. Tony's attorney insisted that the claims have no merit, but law enforcement say that they are investigating the claims of this witness, that they've spoken to her a couple of times, and it could very well lead to something important in the case, but couldn't really elaborate any more on that either. Tony declined to be interviewed, as he was offered equal time that the family were given. But he said that it was the advice of his attorney to not speak on camera. But his attorney did issue a statement to the media that said, quote, “Tony was in a loving, intimate relationship with Stacy, which ended with as much mystery to him as anyone else. He has fully cooperated with the investigators in this case, and is as afraid for Stacy as any of her loved ones. Tony Brand has not specifically been labeled as a person of interest in the disappearance of Stacy Smart, but according to investigators, technically nobody has been cleared, so everyone is a person of interest. But Tony is the last known person to have seen her, and they are exploring that angle as well. Investigators have said aside from the polygraph, Tony has fully been cooperative even allowing them into the house on a number of occasions without a search warrant there are some circumstantial pieces of evidence investigators are following up on but other than that they aren't even sure if a crime has even taken place stacy smart was 52 years old when she disappeared she has blonde hair and blue eyes she stands 5 foot 8 inches or 1.73 meters tall and weighs approximately 180 pounds or 81.65 kilograms. If anyone has any information about her whereabouts, please contact the NorCal Alliance for the Missing at area code 530-378-4491. Thank you for listening to this addendum episode of The Tale of Sherry Papini. Thank you everyone for all of your feedback and theories about this case. And let's keep Stacy's family in our thoughts as we are coming up upon our Thanksgiving holiday in the United States. And as for Sherry, if she was truly abducted, terrorized, and beaten, I hope for a resolution in her case as well, and some arrests are made soon. Thank you again, and until next time, sweet dreams.